Anthony, good to see you. How are you? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Can you hear me okay? I can hear you loud and clear. That's great. I don't know. Awesome. I don't know. Don't know how much you heard of the uh, the previous guest, but I, I, I suppose it'd be good to get your opinions on how to converse with JFK conspiracy proponents. But I, I we'll get around to that later. Maybe, maybe you could just tell our uh, viewers and listeners what it, what it is you do. What keeps you busy? Uh, yeah, at the moment, I'm the executive director of a group called Street Epistemology International. It's a nonprofit educational organization intent on helping people have more effective conversations about difficult topics like the JFK assassination or voting irregularities or vaccine hesitancy or that you should or shouldn't get the vaccine, that type of thing. Think of the most controversial topic of the day, and that is the type of conversations that we want to have using this approach called street epistemology. So. Thanks for having me on too. Absolute pleasure. And I, I'm I'm aware of your work. I've 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 seen what of what you do and been I've been very impressed by it. I know Peter Bogosian as, as well. I know he's a mutual friend. Uh, I've read his work on on street epistemology, and I've always found it fascinating. And it's something I've tried to employ where I can to varying degrees of success. Of success, I think it goes out the window when you're on a platform as toxic as Twitter, perhaps. But in my own personal life, with people I care about, I mean, maybe you can just explain a little bit uh, about the approach and maybe what the, the Socratic method is as well. Well, sure. Yeah. Street epistemology is an offshoot of the Socratic method. We've been developing a course for street epistemology to teach people how to do this. And that was one of the things, things that we recognized early that there's a lot of similarities to the, to the Socratic method. But with street epistemology, we're interested in getting down to the foundation. We heard a lot of claims and justifications with your previous guests about the, the, the JFK assassination. And that's interesting. And we can talk about the definitions of those words and the, the, the reasons why they think that that's the case. But in street epistemology, we want to get down to how a person actually determined that their reasoning is good to their own satisfaction. And we do that by asking questions and, and doing it in a collaborative way. Yeah, Twitter is probably not the best place to do it. I've attempted to do street epistemology on Twitter. It doesn't usually work because other people join in and dogpile. They don't understand that you're trying to do a more collaborative uh effort to really get down to the bottom of their reasoning. Most people are used to arguing about the claim itself and we want to go deeper. Yeah. And I mean, it might be worth talking a little bit about how it can feel a bit counterintuitive because when you mention sort of uh, stolen election claims or anti-vaxxers and things like that, and it, it feels like when I, I come up against that or when anyone comes up against that, there's sort of an almost compulsion just to present facts and data and say, here's the truth of it. And really, it almost feels odd that that doesn't work. It feels like that should be the end of the discussion. And it's not. And what we find is when we tend to present hard facts and data, people tend to get more entrenched in their, their opposite views, don't they? That seems to be the case. And if anyone's ever tried to present facts to people to change their minds or to show them that they're wrong, you, you, this probably isn't news to you that that doesn't work. Hopefully by now people are getting to, to realize that, but then people are left, left wondering, well, what the hell do I do then if I can't give them facts? And then we tend to resort to ridicule or something along the lines. We might actually get lucky by giving a person the very fact that they were ready to receive, but it's, it's, it's kind of left up to chance it's much more effective to ask your conversation partner what their reasoning is for thinking that it's true and working within their model as much as you possibly can. And by not giving them facts, holding that back, they're, they're not ready for it yet. Okay. Just like I might not be ready, ready for facts to contradict something that I find true and dear. I need to have a little rapport with the person. I need to make a, make a connection. And then, um, 
elicit from them their own reasoning. I want to work within their model to figure out what is propping up their own degree of confidence in the conclusion of their, uh, in, in the truth of their conclusion. And that's essentially it, but it's counterintuitive. A lot of people aren't used to doing that. And a lot of people struggle with it. It's, you have to take your ego out of it for one thing. So as long as you get like, I've got views and I have a position on this and I want to, I want to really show you, show you my position. And there's always a time and place to do that in street epistemology, but doing that is one of the worst things that you can do. If you want to help your conversation partner reflect on their own reasoning. It's a good answer. I'm just, just wondering how you feel about the current climate and the de debate format. I suppose the de debate format is is geared around winning and it's very popular and you can obviously win a debate with bad ideas. It's all about who's the most popular on the day. And I, you would have seen the, the kind of YouTube culture of, you know, person A owns another person and then videos do really well. It's the kind of, you know, bear baiting people like to see. How do you kind of navigate these waters when you're trying to break through with a more, you know, calm, rational, more effective approach in many ways? Well, first you have to recognize that debates do have their place. There are a lot of people who will watch a debate and they, they're watching somebody who represents their own position fail at doing so. And that, that person might even be giving the same reasons that they would give. So there's value in that because if I'm observing it, or maybe I'm in the audience or I'm watching a video or whatever, maybe I'm observing an, a, a Twitter exchange, I might actually start contemplating the arguments that the opposing side is making because I'm not in the hot seat. It's only when you're in the direct line of fire of those facts that I think we tend to get more defensive in it. So. I'm a little discouraged by debates because I, I do think that they're problematic because people watch them and they'll see the other side get crushed and they, they internalize those arguments and then those become their own reasons for thinking that it's true. Um, and then they use it with other people, their, their loved ones, their friends, their family, which is problematic. So that I have, I have mixed opinions on debates because they are so valuable. They do expose ideas and faulty reasoning, but picking up those same tools and use them in, in a one-on-one -on -one exchange with a family member, a friend, a colleague, coworker, it's probably not going to land with them. It's going to probably make things worse. How important is it to not mischaracterize your interlocutors' views and opinions? It, I mean, I think the, the opposite would be steel manning, wouldn't it? A way of describing what they think in a way that they would agree is accurate. Is that, is that important in the sort of street epistemology that you do? Yeah, uh, the the building and maintaining of rapport is a crucial component to street epistemology, and a lot of people struggle with it because the, the ego gets in the way. And one of those components is to steel man the opposition. I, I don't even like saying the opposition. Your conversation partner, they have a view, they give a reason, and maybe they didn't formulate it quite properly. And sometimes we jump on it. There was a typo in there, or you don't know what that word means. The most important thing, I think, is to recognize that they're making an attempt to explain their reasoning and try to strengthen it as much as possible to the point where they say, I couldn't have said it better myself, or you're saying it better than I could have even said. That is so awesome because now you're working within their model. You've got a, a good, deep understanding of what their reasoning is, not a false representation, which is only going to cause defensiveness, cause frustration. They're not going to see you as an honest conversation partner from their point of view. And you're going to get an inaccurate insight into how they're structuring their belief. And that's problematic because we want the clearest representation of how they're reasoning about things so that we can dig down to the foundation with them. And if you've done those, if you've straw your 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 conversation partner, my gosh, 
Why would anyone want to talk with you? People appreciate being understood. They'll open up even more. And that openness will lead to more introspection from their point of view. And it's that reflection and introspection that tends to move people on their confidence. Yeah. And I suppose in a way, I mean, it's almost it's almost like planting the seeds of change, isn't it? Introducing a little bit of self-doubt, a little bit of question uh, to somebody. And I, I imagine in a way that can feel to most people, slightly less satisfying knowing that maybe they planted a seed that will come to fruition months, years, decades down the line with something perhaps. Whereas when you destroy someone or own somebody in debate, that's that's uh, a good, albeit temporary feeling, isn't it? So how do you how do you kind of persevere with this, knowing that it is you are playing the long game? It is it is a game of chess in a sense. Most most conversations where you're using this approach is a long game. But it is also amazing how much progress you can make in a five or 10 minute talk. So there, there's a there's a balance like. And, and in fact, I don't think you would necessarily want to topple a person's belief or help a person lower their confidence or show them that they're mistaken in some in some aspect of their reasoning in a short amount of time, because that in itself could be somewhat disorienting. Um, you want to move at the pace that your conversation partner is comfortable with. And in some cases, people are fine. Let's go. Let's get to the, down to the bottom of this. Help me reflect. And if it's I'm incorrect, I'll change my mind. That's optimal, but not, not everyone's there. You have to really, you have to pay attention to how your conversation partner is reacting to the questions you're asking and, and recognize moments where it's like, you know what? I've got three more dynamite questions to ask, but I think I'm going to end the talk here so that they can go home and just think about it. And that takes a, it takes a great deal of restraint and practice. You actually have to have these conversations, reflect back afterwards on what worked and what didn't, and then adjust from there. And then usually the adjustment is the recognition, uh, the recognition that they need more time. So where, where do you go? How do you choose where you go to have these conversations? How, how do you strike up a conversation? How can you tell that somebody might have something worth questioning to begin with? Everyone has something worth questioning to begin with. But as far as my location selections, I try to think of locations that I can go to that are relatively quiet because I want to record the conversations and put them on my YouTube channel or you know, release them as a podcast episode or TikTok. Now I started releasing stuff on TikTok. So venues were personally like for recording, it's got to be quiet. I, and I also want to go somewhere where somebody, uh, where people have time to actually stop and talk for five or 10 minutes. I do a street version of street epistemology, which is a subset of a subset of most people who do this. Most people will just do this in their houses with their friends and family and at work with coworkers and that type of thing. So, um, yeah, I mean, the venue is important. Um, doing SE with your guests here, if with, with an audience watching the previous guest, I should say might be more challenging because there's more at stake. You know, it's so much more effective. I think if you can have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody in a quiet moment when they, when they're prepared and rested and they're actually willing to have the talk. Do you ever do you ever visit campuses at all? I have several, and I mean, I've got kicked just, off I, of a few too, by the way. Right. Well, that that leads nicely into my next question then, because there's this idea now, and I suppose this is the obviously it, it does tie into a sort of stuffy conservative attitude that 
you know, the, the, the new generation are less open to ideas, the more cuddled, everything like, you know, things like that. But it does, there does seem to be a sort of stifling of debate across American campuses and also in the UK uh, in terms of what can and can't be discussed. It seems like there's a, there's a self-censorship almost going on in a way. And I'm wondering if that is something that you would consider to be a problem in the States at the moment. So I stopped doing my street conversations on campuses around 2020. February, March, when COVID really started kicking off. And I haven't been out since. Well, I have, but I haven't uploaded those. And I, I did start to detect a little bit of hesitation to explore issues like transgenderism from students because I think they were worried about penalization from, from sharing their honest views yeah, and other topics like that, gun control, abortion. But I have to tell you, being here in Texas on the campuses in my area, almost all the pushback that I've gotten about being out there have been from theists from conservative leaning folks. They didn't like me out there asking questions with about, you know, with religious people about the views that they had. I, I had groups that would walk by and hold up signs because they knew that I was recording and calling the police on me and actually informing the members of their on their on-campus ministries, advising the students who are members of that not to speak with me. And I've never experienced anything. I'm, I, I'm, it could be happening and I'm not aware of it. But I've never detected it, really, not not to the degree that I've noticed it from the other side. It's always fascinating. I've always had a kind of weird, weird relationship with the states in terms of terms of religion, because I've, I've been a critic of religion myself. And it's very different culturally in terms of the role Christianity plays in America and how sort of, you know, conservative it can be and how obstructive it can be. And it, I always think that's really weird to contrast it with the fact that you guys have the uh, the First Amendment, which was pretty much guarantees separation of church and state and whereas in england we have uh you know an official christian monarchy and we don't have a an official separation of church and state yet we're not very religious here we are a christian country but not socially at all america isn't a christian country but is very socially religious if i've got this correct mm. is this still the case in the states i mean last time i checked in on this the, the creationism debate was waging that seems to fell off a cliff luckily it sure seems that way Although if you look at recent polls, I guess uh, just off the top of my head, it would seem from ages 18 to 24, there's there's less religiosity in those demographics. And then as you go up in age, there's more rel religiosity. So I would say it, it probably one out of three people who I would just say, hey, do you have time for a, a short talk and let's pick a claim? And if they happen, if I happen to suggest, like, let's talk about God. And I don't even do that because one out of three people would say, well, I don't believe in a God. But it didn't deter me. I, I would still use a, a street epistemology type of approach with somebody who was an atheist. You can use it with any claim. Uh, there's there's a versatility to the method that, that I that I really enjoy. But um, and I live in Texas. It, it's regional too, by the way. Like U.S. is a huge country. <laughs> California very liberal. Not that many religious people necessarily. But you have different types of religious thinking. There, there's magical thinking that permeates the United States and the whole world. Uh, so I, I kind of like to use a broader label like religious uh, magical thinking instead of religious because it really uh, casts a wider net yeah it was really it's funny to consider i mean pre pre-covid the majority of the anti-vax stuff was coming from sort of west coast liberals wasn't it some sort of wishy-washy spiritual homeopathic crystal waving kind of hippies in, in a sense if i'm not mischaracterizing there it's possibly not a steel man that anthony i'll be honest with you um but i mean how do we then deal with issues such as the ones we just mentioned here and you know you, you even mentioned abortion because these are such like emotionally 
stifling issues for people. And a lot of people have really, especially in the last couple of years, really thrown their personal identity in pro this against that. It seems like the political landscape's becoming more and more divided on these senses and more tribal, more dogmatic, especially, you know, pre and post Trump. Uh, how, how do we have these conversations when a lot of people's identity are directly wedded to the things you're, you're challenging? Have you ever any really adverse effect, uh, reactions rather? I've had adverse re reactions when I, when I, forget about an SE type of approach and I just target the actual claim that is tied to the person's identity. Why do you believe that? It's stupid. Here's facts that show that you're wrong. Uh, that type of thing. Dwelling up at the what level of a, imagine a pyramid of what, why, how. Dwelling at the claim itself is only going to lead to defensiveness, especially if it's tied to their identity. Uh, we fall in love with the beliefs that we, that we develop. We think that we associate ourselves with the claim and in, in street epistemology we set aside we recognize that this is a very important belief to you how sure are you that it's true what are your reasons and as i'm saying these words imagine driving down that pyramid what is your claim what are your reasons for thinking that this is true how sure are you that it's true but down here at the bottom is is how are you determining that those are good reasons when you get down to the how or the epistemology epistemological level where you're assessing the quality of the person's reasoning it has this it's a magical magical it's not magical but there's there's something psychological about it people tend to open up people are less a lot less threatened when you explore the methodology that they're using to assess the quality of their reasons for thinking that their claim is true to x degree of confidence People will open up. They love it. They want to. They want to explore that with you, and that's usually where you get those moments of reflection. And what's so cool about it is that when somebody realizes that their methodology, there's something mistaken about the way that they've they've assessed the quality of their reasoning for the one claim, they real they begin to realize there's other claims that I've concluded are true because of the same methodology and the same reasoning assessment. So there's a there's a incredible efficiency of street epistemology if you can help somebody realize that my method of faith for example is is a is a is an unsatisfactory methodology to my own satisfaction i'm talking about the claimant themselves not me as the questioner but when your conversation partner realizes that their methodology is flawed it has implications for many many other beliefs and that's why i'm so charged about it because it's it's the solution to the problem that we're in and it's just a matter of normalizing it and and helping people understand what's actually happening and how advantageous it is to shift to this approach as, a, as opposed to debating yeah for sure i mean one of the things that i i found really valuable a long time ago was was sort of acquainting myself with the various logical fallacies not only could did it make it a lot easier to see through a lot of other people's arguments but it allowed me to sort of check my biases as well and realize when i were putting forward an argument that perhaps it's not wise to put forward a, a purely you know anecdotal argument or recognize where i'm attacking a person's character rather than the argument and it, it does help check those biases and I'm, I'm surprised how very few people I, I speak to are aware of what these these are I'm just wondering how important is a good grasp of sort of the logical fallacies when you're doing street epistemology it's very helpful if you are aware of logical fallacies before you go out to talk with people about how they're reasoning about things however 
uh, if you recognize somebody is using a, a, a logical fallacy in their reasoning, one of the worst things you can do is say, you're using a logical fallacy. Here's yeah. the link on, on Wikipedia to, to show that you're doing it. I'm, it might land with them if you have a lot of rapport and they're, and they're open to it, but more than likely, they're not even going to read it. What's far more effective is to, is to, I think there might be a logical fallacy here. I think this might be an appeal to, to tradition and to simply formulate a question that might help reveal to them that that's what they're doing. Now, you don't want to ask loaded and leading questions and trick and trap people, but the formulation of these questions can really be helpful in identifying flaws in their own reasoning. And you don't even have to mention the, the specific logical fallacy that happens to be at play here. People are smart enough to notice it on their own. They'll notice that there's a discrepancy, especially if you bring in a, a real world explanation. So maybe you're talking about vaccines, but they're also a plumber. And if you could just take the same reasoning that they're using to arrive at their conclusion or the logical fallacy that be, that's being tripped in their reasoning about vaccines, whether you're for or against, it doesn't matter. You could overlay the same reasoning to something that they do at work. And that's usually when the light bulb goes off and they, they realize that they're, there's, they're being inconsistent. And that's what I love about the approach is I'm not telling, I don't need to know anything about vaccines to, to use this a technique with somebody who has a position on it. They're the experts. Yeah, that's a great, great point. Obviously, you don't need to be an expert in the in the in the uh, the claims. Just you know the reasoning for them claims. I suppose. I'm just wondering if you've noticed as well. I mean, one of one of the things I really enjoy doing is is taking a camera and going to various events and just interviewing people, kind of like a vox pops. Maybe the you know maybe it will turn into a debate, etc. And I always try and be as Socratic as possible and let people reveal themselves and ask the right questions. But I'm just wondering as the climate shifted a little bit because I I found that there seems to be a little bit more hostility to towards people who have a camera and are asking questions. There's this sort of distrust of people perceived to be, quote unquote, the media, for instance. And I'm just wondering if you've run into any difficulties mm. in recent years that you perhaps wouldn't previously. Oh, man. Okay. So I've got a lot of thoughts on this. Like when I would go out, I would have one camera. I, I had a simple setup. It wasn't a complicated, high quality cameras. It was very low, low tech. And that signals on, you know, unprofessionalism or I, I'm not really with a specific outlet. And I think people give you a lot more leeway when you're not at quite as polished with your setup. And there's actually a group. There's, there's a, there's one individual in particular. He's got a channel. Do you mind if I mention his YouTube channel? He's doing a tour okay. around the, it's called sound epistemology and he's, he's looking for some funding, but he's going to all these different campuses and meeting up with other people who are interested in street epistemology and, and setting up tables to a table and two chairs and a, and a, a dinky little sign. And they're getting interview after interview after interview. Students want to talk to them. They just don't want to be set up and tricked. And that, yes. that seems to be all we see these days. So as long as you explain what you're doing and you're sincere about it and you give people an opportunity to explore their own reasoning, they're going to love it. And there are people that are grabbing cards and brochures and and, and they want to do it themselves. As they go from campus to campus, they're leaving a trail of people who have been exposed to this approach. And we're hopeful that they pick it up and use it. Now, that's a great answer because, I mean, like we previously mentioned, there is a lot of content now which relies on sort of gotchas and jump cuts and making people look stupid for clicks. And I, that's one of the first things I always have to do when I explain to you know when i ask someone if they want to speak to me I, i'm very upfront and just say i'm not going to edit you out of context what you say is what you say and that's what will be in the video and you know can i have a few words but it just feels like there's a little bit more hesitancy now to talk to somebody with a camera for that that reason so has have you had any experiences in your life then where 
you know, someone's worked their epistemological magic on you, asked all the right questions, approached you in a in a, in a different way that wasn't combative and more inquisitive and, and kind of leading you to a more reasonable place. Can you think of any position that you may have held that you no longer do because of this approach? Most of my changes in my own positions have been from using SE with other people who have positions. Oh, okay. It hasn't necessarily been people challenging me about mine, but I have to say, at our nonprofit organization, Street Epistemology International, big plug, um, we use the technique ourselves. We have a lot of challenges that we face as an organization. We have we have a board with different ideas about the direction the organization should go and what constitutes good SE. And we eat our, we eat our own dog food is is the phrase. We we use as much as we can. What's what's kind of neat though is that. We're so aware of the techniques and, and the tools that we've just adopted them. It's not like I have to intentionally build rapport with somebody from the board because I disagree with them. We, we know we we're, we're there. You know what I'm saying? Like once you do this enough, the tools become second nature and you're, you don't even realize you're using them because I'm not getting triggered by, by something that I find offensive. You know, I, I know that I can ask a challenging question to somebody who, who, who's a friend of mine or, or, or colleague because I know they know that um, that I'm being that I'd be charitable with their response, and I would steal man their answer, and I, I'd ask for a definition if I was confused about it. It's the end state that we want to get to culturally, and and it's just a matter of replicating it and popularizing and simplifying and getting it out there on podcasts like this. Yeah, and um, you mentioned something at the start of the show uh, in terms of students being a little reluctant to mention this idea of you know or. Uh, issues relate to transgenderism, for instance, and uh, that is definitely a very hot topic emotionally and, and certain you know, certain reputational ram ramifications. But it's also something I've taken a great interest in over the last few years. And what I tend to have noticed is when I cover it, in else. The, yeah, sure. Uh, when I tend to cover it in the UK or go to events, I've been, you know, London, Manchester, Scotland, up and down the country, talking to people. It seems to be overwhelmingly in the UK, sort of middle-aged leftist socialist women that are banging the drum about this. And this isn't any sort of slight, this is just an observation. Whereas in the States, the pushback or the totems of the pushback are the people talking about the most appear to be sort of right-leaning conservative religious males, sort of your Matt Walsh's, your Ben Shapiro's kind of things. And I was just wondering, it has sort of tribalism in terms of political persuasion in the States or in the UK made this conversation especially difficult. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would say the most prominent examples of transgenderism or any other hot button topic are made f like it, it, it's made far worse by by the people that seem to be the most interested in it. They're making things worse by how they're going about doing it, which is so ironic. Like if you really cared about what, whether you're for or against anything um, and you're passionate about it, why would you want to make the situation worse? Wouldn't you want to make it better? Wouldn't you yeah. want to help the other side think more carefully about their reasoning? Wouldn't you want to be more open-minded about what it is you're hearing about uh, from their point of view? But almost all the examples that we see today are anything but. It's, it's so frustrating to be sitting here on tools that we know work that would help both sides, but nobody fucking uses them. And we well, need to get to the point where people start using them.
I agree. Um, what what sort of the political persuasion on the uh, the board of street uh, epistemology international does it does it vary? Is there one sort of overwhelming like liberal perspective or conservative perspective? Or is it kind of it's a mix it's a... pretty diverse, uh, right. and our board is not huge. I, I think we have eight people plus myself as the executive director. Um, but we differ on all sorts of things. Uh, we I wouldn't expect it to be any other way, and especially as we expand and bring on other board members from around the world. We have we have a, a person from Germany. Someone who is from Russia but now lives in Israel, um, a fellow in Canada—is that international enough? Um, and then the rest are Americans. But I mean, we we differ on all different things, and I I would never imagine it going any other way. We're How always going to have different positions on it. Well, sure. I think maybe possibly you've answered my question then here, but I was just going to finish with asking you how important diversity of thought is. I know, it, I mean, I mean, to be taken literally, a lot of people will say the term diversity of thought in itself is some sort of conservative or right wing or bigoted dog whistle. I just wanted to get your opinion on it. I mean, I mean, whether, whether you think it's important or not, you're going to be dealing with it. So and and we're dealing with it. So it's not like we actively go out to say, okay, well, where does this person stand on it? Usually, what catches our attention, as far as like being on the board of directors of Street Epistemology International, is what are you doing in a positive way to promote the 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 ideals of street epistemology, which would be like the ethics the ethics of being honest and not wanting to hurt people. I guess maybe it might be maybe sort of an unwritten one. Um, can you be charitable? Can you be curious? Do you have epistemic humility about your own views? Are you open-minded? Um, do you value evidence? Those are probably some of the things that we would find most important. And then all the other stuff is sort of ancillary. Yeah, I seem to remember a really good tenet of, you know, sort of uh, street epistemology is sometimes just letting people be wrong and, and accepting that that's okay. I feel, I feel like that does a lot of work for me sometimes, the idea that it's okay not to not to force the point with somebody how it's okay to sometimes leave with a disagreement and you could have you could have learned from that moment yourself i guess but that i i don't want anyone to get the impression that street epistemology is sort of this wishy-washy well let's just all agree to disagree there is a factual truth of the matter on all the issues that we talked about it's just a matter of setting aside our egos and our adherence to our dogmatic positions and being open-minded to 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 give a little bit if you realize that your that your reasoning is flawed in some way and and that's really at the heart of it. Well, Anthony, I think that's a great point to end on. Where can people find more of your work? Please go to streetepistemology.com and you can find links to anything street epistemology. If you're interested in me specifically, go to Twitter. I have a link tree link. And I think that they were talking about putting that in the in the description somewhere. Yeah. But more uh, finally, like we're working on a course to teach people how to do this. We've been working on it for more than two years and we're right on the verge of releasing it probably before the end of this year. And for all the American folks, remember the like the, the big important holiday in in uh, November, maybe around that time or beforehand, so you can have some tools to use this use this with your family and friends. And I think it's a game changer. It's going to teach people how to do this in a really effective way and in a fun way, and give them the school the, the skills to start doing this to actually start putting it into practice. Certainly make for an interesting Thanksgiving for sure. Uh, Thanksgiving rather, uh, Anthony. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for speaking to me. My pleasure. Thanks. Take care.